Today's text is Matthew 5, 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Go ahead and have a seat. We're going to continue this morning, uh, walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 5, which is a uh, big chunk of Scripture. So um, I will do the best that I can um, to communicate it quickly so that it is attainable, (laughs) retainable, that's what I mean, so... Um, but if you let me remind you very quickly that we started our series uh, by looking at what is commonly known as the Beatitudes, and we talked about how the King's message uh, opens with God's heart to bless His people. Uh, God's heart is not for ill or bad to be, to become upon His people, but it is for good. He wants to bless. In fact, the reason that God has given. Um, instructions and boundaries in life isn't to keep us from enjoying good things, but it's actually so that we will live within those boundaries so that He can bless us. Because what do we know about God? He's perfect. He is holy. He is good. And because of that, He cannot bless evil. He cannot bless sin. He cannot bless that which is not of and like His Nature And so God gives us these beatitudes, and Jesus opens the message uh, to the people, to his disciples on a hillside, by telling them that God's heart is to bless. And then last week, we looked at how the king's message was a life. Uh, kingdom life is one that is lived distinct from the world. And so Jesus begins to... Uh, explain um, kind of, and we looked again at the Beatitudes again last week and talked about how uh, in verses 13 through 16 where Jesus says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, how those uh, Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart and the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted, that, that those things that God blesses in his people is the practical ways that we're to live distinct lives in the world. The world doesn't make peace. The world doesn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. The world doesn't mourn over their sins. But because we are the salt of the earth and the light of the earth, we should live that way, and that is a life that God blesses. And this morning's message is entitled, A Message of Righteousness. A Message of Righteousness. You see, there's a myth that surrounds Christianity and the church as a whole, and that myth is this. That myth is that God is only interested in turning bad people good, right, and good people better. That's what we believe, right? That's what the world definitely thinks before they've experienced uh, regeneration of heart and faith, is they look at the instructions of God, and they don't see them as God's means to blessing His people, but they see it as restrictions on life. And so therefore, they don't think that God is good. But they think that God just wants to make bad people good and good people better. Isn't this often the way we find ourselves treating one another? The way we parent our children? Because you know what happens when bad people become good and good people become better? My life gets easier. 
right? If you would just become a good person, I wouldn't have to go and make peace. Right? See the connection? But the truth is not that God is interested in making bad people good and good people better. But the truth is that God requires righteousness. And that is the message that the king brings to his people this morning. The king brings a message of righteousness. So what is the difference between righteous and good? Well, righteousness is not only doing what is right, but it is also doing it for the right reasons. You see, righteousness goes deeper than just the behavior. Doing what is right is the behavior. But the heart of it is why are you doing what is right? R.C. Sproul says this in an article that he wrote where he says, don't confuse spirituality with righteousness. He says, what is righteousness? The simplest answer to that question is this. Righteousness is doing what is right in the sight of God. This is a simple definition that is far more complex under the surface. To be righteous is to do everything that God calls us to do. And what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, that is righteousness. That is doing what is right for the right reasons. You see, when we talk about righteousness, we're talking and we're speaking directly to the deepest, dirtiest, darkest, most defiled parts of a human's heart and nature. We're talking about motives. We're talking about those things that are often unseen, but we know them very clearly because we know why we do things. Being good is simply performing well. There is, when we talk about, if, we're, if our goal is to make good kids, if our goal is to just make good Christians or good people, then we never have to look at the heart. We just have to give you a list of, of boxes to check. Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? And that's really what our hearts want because it's easier for us. It's less messy that way. We tell ourselves that having a checklist to check is easier to live. And I think that when we look at verses 17 through 20 this morning, where Jesus talks about fulfilling the law, and then when we take time to look at verses 21 through 48 this morning, where Jesus actually begins to roll out what that actually means, I think that these disciples thought they were getting a box of, a list of boxes to check. But Jesus quickly shows them the path of righteousness. Now look at verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now the first thing that we have to understand about this, what Jesus is telling his disciples is that all of the Old Testament stands. Like, put yourselves on this hillside with Jesus. They don't know a New Testament yet. They're still, if we, if we follow out the rest of the gospel, they're still uh, oblivious to the fact that Jesus came to die. They're still thinking that Jesus is going to uh, um, bring his kingdom to earth now. And so what Jesus tells them is that everything that is in the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the instructions of God, the instructions that God has given to men, right? It's good. It hasn't changed. And that's a part of this message of righteousness that we have to understand. That because God is good, we cling to that, right? Don't we worship God because he's good? Don't we worship God because he's holy or or different than us? But what we don't like to cling to is the fact that we are not good. We like to minimize our own sin. But we cannot, listen, we cannot in fact cling to God's goodness and His righteousness without realizing that we're different, that we fall short. And so Jesus isn't saying that all the instructions that God has given you before, He's not saying that they're gone away with. He's not saying here's a new set of instructions. God does not change. In fact, Romans 8, chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that all of God's law are righteous demands. In fact, if God is unchanging, 
If God is pure, if God is good and holy and perfect, then He must require righteousness from us. You see, they're not polar op. They don't. They, 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 the equation adds up. We don't want it to. We want God to overlook it. You see, our, our hearts tend to be inclined to believe in and have faith in the sovereignty of man, not the sovereignty of God. But Jesus is telling his disciples, and by way, this morning he's telling us that he is not here to do away with the law or the prophets. God doesn't change. God's demands on our life are good and right. In fact, part of his demands on our lives to be righteous is what lets us know that he is God. Verse 18, he goes on, and Jesus says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law serves a purpose. The law serves a purpose. The king's message does not, listen, we can't miss this, the king's message does not relieve the demands of the law. In fact, look at verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus goes on to say, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this is where I think the disciples in their minds are already formulating checklists. I think they see the Pharisees, and they see how the Pharisees keep the law, right, to such a degree that they make their own law so that they keep the law, right? And so I think the disciples are sitting there and like, okay, so all we have to do is do what the Pharisees do, only do better. And that's the myth of the church, that God wants to make good people better and bad people good. And so I think, I don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us, but listen, what do we know about Peter and James and John? They were pretty full of themselves. They fought over who got to be the greatest in, kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, right? So I'm thinking that their minds are going toward, okay, we've got, we know how to do it. All we got to do is be better than them. But listen, we can't stop there. We have to allow verse 20 to be interpreted by verses 21 through 48. We can't stop. That's why we sectioned this portion together. You see, because in verse 21, Jesus begins to separate for these guys good from righteous. He begins to show them the difference between good and righteous. And in fact, what he ends up doing is, what he's really doing is he's beginning to define for them what he means by unless their righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, in the next six areas that Jesus lists here for the rest of chapter 5, he opens each one of them by saying, you have heard it said. You see, he's referencing the law. He's referencing the prophets. He's bringing it to mind. But then he quickly says, but I say to you, what he is communicating to them is that God does not accept behavioral modification. Is it good to not murder? Yes. Is it good to, to not lie? Yes. Is it good to not have an affair? Yes. Is it good to, do, uh, to um, love those who love you? Yes. Yes. All that is good. But it's not righteous. And God is a God of righteousness. So if you're taking notes, it might be helpful to make two columns as we go through the rest of chapter 5 and the time we have left. In the column on the left, you could head it by either writing the word Pharisee or the word good or the word heard it said, the words heard it said. That's the first column. The second column on the right would be labeled Jesus, righteous, or I say to you, any one of those three that corresponds with however you labeled the first one. Because that's how we're going to go through looking at this. Because what Jesus is doing is he's laying before them what they had heard, what is good, what the Pharisees had taught them. And then he's going to lay before them the true path of righteousness as it's compared to what is good. So what we're seeing is behavioral modification is what they have heard. 
But heart transformation is what Jesus says to them. And he starts in verse 21, and he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. That's a good thing, right? Isn't society better because more people don't murder? And wouldn't it be even better if less people murdered? It's good. But that's not the path of righteousness. Because Jesus goes on to say, But I say to you, in verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And that's the exact same description that Jesus gave in verse 21, where he says, You have heard it said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus tells them that those who hate their brothers are subject to the same judgment as those who murder. We don't like to hear that. I can only imagine the disciples now are already beginning to try and figure out what he's getting at, right? We know that if God's spirit is at work in the heart of sinful man, then we will begin to see all the times we've been angry and hated, right? That's what's coming to pass. In fact, Jesus even goes so far when he talks about the righteous path is is not hating because hate comes from the heart. He even says that if you have a gift, if you're going to give a gift at the altar and and you remember that somebody has odds against you, stop. Don't give the gift. Go make peace. Go be reconciled. Get your heart right. Because if you give that gift before your heart is right, it's not acceptable. God doesn't accept it. But when your heart is right, come back to the altar with your gift and give your gift from a clear, conscious, and a pure heart. How many ways does hate play out in our lives? How many ways? It is constant, is it not? Sometimes it takes the form of us hating ourselves. Sometimes our response to our own sin and our own shortcomings is not repentance and remembering the good things that God has for His people and the good things that God has done for His people, therefore transforming their very nature. We don't, we don't often run to that first. We begin to hate ourselves, And we begin to believe the lies that, that, that we're not good enough for God, Right? It plays out in the way that we treat one another. It plays out in the way that we parent, the way that we love our spouses. But Jesus says, if your righteousness is going to exceed that of the Pharisees, do not hate. He continues. Verse 22. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's a good thing, right? Doesn't everybody want to be guaranteed of that security in a marriage relationship? Right? Don't we, we come together and we have faith and we, we hope that, that that's a good thing. We believe that that's a good thing and we hope that it will be held true. It's a good thing. God hates divorce. But Jesus says... Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. You see, what is good is to not have an affair, to not commit adultery. But what is righteous is not to lust. Is this ever more difficult? I mean, there's no new sin under the sun, right? Um, sin is the same. The human condition is the same. Ecclesiastes tells us that. But what does change is the methods that we can sin or the avenues by which we can act out upon that lustful sin. In fact, I was so blessed yesterday. Where were we? We were at the mall, I think it was. or well, We were at the parking lot at my nephew's baseball game, and I didn't see a, a guy was walking up, and one of my sons said, Hey, Dad, don't look at that guy's T-shirt. And I go, Okay, why? And he goes, Well, because there's a girl in a bikini on it. T-shirts bring about lust in the human heart. 
You can't check out at a grocery store without being presented with the option to lust. A television show, a commercial. It is, our our society loves it. In fact, our society, listen, our society has taken what is good and don't commit adultery and has made adultery good. It's less than the standard. But Jesus says, don't lust. What security would you like in your marriage? The fact that your spouse will never have an affair or the fact that your spouse will never lust after somebody? That's heart. You can be full of lust and never have a physical affair or commit physical adultery. But what Jesus says is that heart that is full of lust is just as bad and therefore liable to just as much judgment and shame and condemnation before God as committing an, adult, an affair. Can you guys, like, you should be, we should all be reeling right now, right? Because right now what should be happening is, is all of our shortcomings in life should be falling before our eyes. The lust, the anger, the hate, the fact that we thought we were okay because we didn't have an affair and we haven't killed anybody yet. But that's not the message of righteousness that Jesus is bringing. Make no mistake, he did not come to abolish the law and God's demand of righteousness. Now he goes on, and look at how these are paired together. I think it's amazing. Jesus is so strategic that he talks about lust And then from lust, and he he compares having an affair with looking at them lustful or having lust in in your heart. And then he goes on to talk about divorce. And he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. See, it was okay and very common. Like, listen, divorce is not just new to our society, right? Like, although there was a period in time in our culture where divorce wasn't as common and commonplace and acceptable as it is today doesn't mean that it wasn't that way in other cultures and other times. See, we, we get tricked into thinking that because we have seen the, the, the moral uh, steps declining in our own society, that we just assume that all of history has followed the course of our country, right? Like, all of this is new to everybody because it's new to us. That's not true. Divorce was extremely commonplace in this time. And so Jesus says in verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now get this. He takes another step further. He says, Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's no getting around that. You see, it is not just okay To, 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 rem- to, to be divorced and, and remarry regardless of the reason for divorce. It is not just okay. Like, our society says, well, as long as they're divorced, it's all okay. And in fact, that's even beginning to change. Sadly, even within the church, we have a very personal experience with that. We served at a church, well, we stopped after this, but uh, where the pastor was going to willfully marry two people even though they weren't divorced. And so even men who are claiming to be men of God and representing God's heart and preaching his word and, and serving his church are beginning to take what God says is righteous and, and take those steps down. But Jesus says the divorce is only permitted in the cases of adultery, not for any reason. And I think what he's getting at here, as, he, as, as, he, as, I, as I tried to make as many connections this week as I could in my mind between the, the section in verse 27 about lust to the section on divorce, I think what Jesus is getting at is what is right matters more than what you feel. You see, you may not feel that God made you one when you were married, but God, in fact, made you one when you were married. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's truth. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Now he goes on, and he talks about oaths. Verse 33, he says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, 
but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So see, what was commonplace then is a lot of pacts were made by word of mouth. There wasn't uh, as many written contracts as we have today, okay? And so what would happen is similar to when you're sworn in a court is you would basically swear on the Bible that what you're saying is truthful. That was okay. It was common. You would draw upon something bigger than yourself or something more reputable than yourself and say that by this name or by this person, what I am saying is to be true or I will do. But Jesus says, verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus is like, you can't even just say, I promise or I swear, because you don't have the power to make your own hair change colors naturally. Naturally. Jesus is saying, you don't even have the power in yourself to to swear or to promise something. But he finishes by saying, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You see, it's a heart issue to be a person, a man or a woman of character and integrity, and to be a man or a woman that does what he or she says they will do. If you have to draw upon something else, then what Jesus is saying, if you have to draw upon something else, then that is from a place of evil. That's what he says. It's not righteous. We might think it's good, but it's not righteous. What is righteous? Simply doing what you say you're going to do. And never more do I see us in the church break this than when we're parenting our children. If you do this, I will do this. Okay, I really mean it this time. If you do that again, one, two, right? And it goes on and on. But Jesus says, if you're going to say you're going to do something, then do it. Now, typically what happens in parenting is we say we're going to do something that's too extreme for what the kid is doing. So it doesn't mean that we go through with that extreme behavior in that moment. What it means is that we stop and we repent before our child and we tell them, I was out of control. What I said to you was not reasonable. So I am not going to do that because that's not a punishment that fits the crime, if you will. And then in that moment, then you begin to administer what is proper for what they did. But we have to be people who mean what we say. Yes, I will be there. Yes, I will do this. Hey, how about this one? Oh, I'll pray for you. How many of us have committed to pray for somebody and when we walked away, we never thought about it again? Let your yes be yes. If you can't do something, Jesus gives you the freedom to say no. If you legitimately can't be somewhere or do something, then you have the freedom to say, I can't do that. He goes on in verse 38, and he talks about, now he talks about retaliation. And could it be that the reason he paired oaths with retaliation is because there were people who didn't keep their oath? Even though they swore by God or Jerusalem or earth or their own head? Could it be? I would say so. It's commonplace today. No reason to think it wasn't commonplace then. So Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But now, oh man, look at this. Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What is good is repaying evil for evil, eye for an eye. What is righteous 
is giving. What is righteous is allowing them to take, even if it's rightfully yours. You see, God, what Jesus is saying here is that we are to respond to those who wrong us with what? Generosity. You guys remember how we defined generosity a few weeks ago in our money series? A readiness to give without second thoughts. That's what Jesus is talking about. It is righteous to respond to somebody who has wronged you with generosity, to give without second thought. And then, of course, these are, this is connected. I think it's a beautiful uh, uh, pyramid, if you will, or foundation here, steps that Jesus is building. In verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to love those who love you. It's a good thing to love your wife. It's a good thing to love your kids. Right? It's a good thing. But Jesus says in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you will be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you who love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now listen, we hate taxes, right? The IRS is a three-letter word, right? It was the same thing back then. It's the same thing. In fact, it was a little more insulting for these guys because what happened is the Jews were under Roman control. Roman issued the taxes, and what they would do is they would recruit Jews to go collect the taxes from the Jews and pay them to the Roman government. So if you were a Jewish person, a tax collector was a traitor. They hated him. That's why it's so amazing that in Jesus' 12 disciples, he picked a tax collector. A traitor. Jesus redeems everybody. He shows no um, partiality or discrimination in the wretchedness that he will redeem. But you are to love, listen, listen, this is what is righteous. This is, listen, remember what Jesus said, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, the Pharisees love those who love them. But Jesus says that we're to love those that are against us. Against us. To pray for those who persecute you. That is righteous. Doesn't that take a change of heart, not just behavior? Because I don't think what Jesus is saying here is to pray and ask God to kill those who are persecuting you. I don't think Jesus is saying, God, I know I can't do it, so will you just... I think what he's saying, is that love? God, pray that you would open their eyes. Pray, God, that they would receive what they don't deserve, just as I have received what I don't deserve from you. I think it's okay to pray in the midst of it, God, relieve this persecution. But if it's your will that it remain, help me to walk faithfully and righteously. So what is good? Don't murder. Don't cheat. Give a divorce before you start sleeping around. Invoke God's name to back up an oath. Take revenge. Love those that are easy to love. That's what's good. But what is righteous, what is deeper than just behavior and deeper than the outside but gets to the heart, is don't hate. Don't lust. Do what is right, not what you feel. Mean what you say. Respond with generosity. And love those that are against you. Again, in verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now look at the end of verse 48. This is how this section ends in verse 48. Jesus says, You therefore, in case there is any doubt... You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what I hope that you have come to realize in the last 33 minutes and 15 seconds. 
that Jesus' message of righteousness is unattainable. See, the goal of, 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 of this and the way it was presented this morning is not to encourage you to leave here and try harder. It's to lay the weight of God's righteousness before you in, such, in a way that is so heavy that you crumble underneath it realizing that you can't do it. Can you be perfect? You already haven't been. You're hopeless. Have you hated? Have you lusted? Have you not done what you said you would do? Then there's no hope for you on your own. This is the me- Listen, this is a part of the message of righteousness. Do you realize that? Now let's go back to verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's the good news. I'll bet during all of this laying on of the heaviness of righteousness that nobody remembered that part of verse 17. That's why I want to bring it to our attention. Jesus did not come away to do did not come to do away with the righteous requirements of God, but he came to fulfill them. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27 say this. This is God speaking. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus fulfilled Ezekiel 36. It is because Jesus perfectly fulfilled at every turn, Jesus loved his enemies. He responded generously to those who wronged him. He never looked upon a woman or a man and had lustful thoughts. He always did what he said he was going to do. He never hated Can you imagine not hating the people that are brutally beating and torturing you for no reason at all? Can you even fathom not hating them? Jesus loved them. You see, this is what we call at the cross. This is why we have spent so much time in the last four years talking about how the, the, the perfect sinless life of Jesus is good news for the Christian. It is a part of the gospel. Because at the cross, when Christ took our sins upon him, he imputed his righteousness to those who believe. He didn't impart it. There's a difference. He imputed it. Impart means given as a gift. God gives gifts to his children. Jesus' righteousness is not one of the gifts that God gives. Jesus' righteousness was imputed. To us. What does that mean? It means that Jesus' righteousness was credited to us as if we were righteous. It is given to us to such a depth that it transforms our heart that when God sees us, He doesn't see the way that we lust and hate and lie and get revenge and gossip and cheat. He sees the righteousness of Christ who always perfectly fulfilled every commandment of God. Every commandment of God. You see, if you are not being taught to, equipped to do, and called to do something that is unattainable in yourself, then you are not being led in Christianity. Christianity is a religion of righteousness, properly defined as doing what is right for the right reasons. You see, God's heart is not to make bad people good, but to make wretched people righteous. And Jesus fulfilled that. And that is the good news that we can walk out of here in. That is the good news that frees us. Because we were the enemies of God, but God imputed the righteousness of Christ to us, we can love our enemies. Because God always does what he said that he will do. 
we can do, we are free to do what we say we will do. It is good news. Stand with me and we'll pray. Uh, Band, go ahead and come on up. Please. God, I pray this morning that I took the most um, faithful path in explaining this passage of Scripture. In a good way, God, I do pray that the weightiness of righteousness and our complete inability to be righteous, God, was made clear to our hearts and our eyes this morning. But I pray even more than that, God, that the righteousness of Christ that is freely given to those who believe that Jesus came for us, those who believe that he did, in fact, live a perfectly righteous life before you, those who do believe that Jesus was died and that your wrath for sin was poured out on Christ for those who believe. God, for those who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, breathing life into our dead souls. And for those who believe that Jesus ascended to heaven where he now sits at the hand of the Father making intercession on our behalf and where he sent the Holy Spirit to empower us and enlighten us to the truth of Jesus. And gloriously, God, those of us who believe that Jesus will return and right every wrong and permanently and eternally establish his physical kingdom on earth. God, I pray that those truths would be more on our hearts and our minds, God, than our inability to be righteous. I pray this morning, God, that we would repent, that we would turn from the world, that we would turn from ourselves and our flesh, God, that we would cling to the cross of Christ and all that it means. God, I pray that you would save us and wash us clean. I pray, Lord, that we would leave here this morning encouraged in Christ and empowered to live a righteous life because we know that our acceptance before you is not determined by our ability to be righteous, but our acceptance before you was already determined by Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us who believe on the cross. Amen. Go ahead, come down, have a seat. No, we're not done. You gotta go sit down. Go ahead and have a seat, everybody. Um, We'll pray for uh, Mackenzie real quick here. Here, cover. Let me have it. Uh, Let's pray. God, I uh, together, uh, not I, God, but we. Uh, come before you as a family, and we pray right now that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding would fill the Parker's hearts. Comfort Trey, God, as he's hurting, uh, not knowing what's going on. Uh, Comfort Andrew and Jody in the same way, God, and of course, Mackenzie, Lord. We pray, God, um, Lord, that you would bring healing, that you would bring restoration, God, that she would be okay, Lord, that Maybe it would just be something um, minor. And so we pray that, God. We ask that you, your gracious hand of healing and mercy, God, would fill their hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so as we've seen since beginning our Sermon on the Mount series, God's heart is to bless his people. Our lives should be lived distinct from the world. And Christ doesn't make bad people good, but he makes wretched people righteous. A very practical and crucial part of living distinct lives is by faith, we know, we can all attest to this, that involves obeying God in difficult times. Knowing that living distinct lives is bookended between God's heart to bless his people and Christ our King, imputing his righteousness to those that believe, It infuses our hearts with hope in the midst of difficulties that often come with obedience. Uh, As many of you know, right now, my family and our church is faced with taking a difficult step of faith. 
God in His fatherly care for our lives has laid before us the joy of obeying Him even when it is difficult. Um, And that step of faith for us as a church is for us to stop gathering together as a church. We have spent much time looking for other ways to walk by faith and obey, but God has graciously made it abundantly clear that He is asking us in faith to take this step of obedience together. Please know that just as I tried my best to teach and model for you, I did not make this decision alone. I've met with trusted men in the Acts 29 network who have given me good and godly counsel, as well as our own board of godly men. As I begin to feel God placing this on my heart, my prayer was this, that God would either give me the strength and my weakness and grant the faith that I need, or that he would cause our team to see that this is God, even through the difficult emotions that are attached. In every conversation that I have had, without exception, God made it clear to the men that have served our church well that this is what he's asking us to do. A few Sundays ago, I submitted a timeline to the board, and the four of us agreed that it was the best path forward at this time. I'm grateful, for my, I'm grateful to God for the time leading Crosspoint, and I'm forever changed by our time together as a family of missionary servants. I have worked tirelessly to explain Scripture in a way that is accurate to God's heart, <clears throat> while also being understandable, to proclaim the gospel and that it is good news for all of life and relevant in each situation, and to live among you as one who believes and lives what I preach. God has been extravagant with the grace that He has shown me, my family. Uh, God has been extravagant with the grace that He has shown me. <clears throat> my family and I continue to be unwaveringly committed to being disciple-making disciples of Jesus, and this transition does not change that. My desire is to serve you well in the days leading up to our last gathering on June the 12th. Because our identity is in Christ and not in our accomplishments, paired with us doing this work for Jesus and not for ourselves, we can walk away secure in the Father's love when Jesus asks us to walk away. Of late, I have found great comfort in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 through 58. It says this, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I'm sorry for those of you that this comes um, as a shock. Um, We've been talking about it in our missional communities. Um, This obviously is not easy. Um, So I want to give you guys, this is the perfect time to ask questions. Any any questions that you may have? Yes. No, you can't have a mint. Nobody has a question? Uh, Okay, a couple questions that I was asked through this process is, one, what about giving? Do we keep giving to the church? What should that look like? Um, We'll continue to operate, um, and you can continue to give through the middle of June if you wish. Uh, We have some, obviously, bills that we need to to, to pay, and then any remaining money that the church has will be going to Acts 29, so... Your money won't be divided up amongst us personally. Uh, it, it will go to Acts 29. Um, um, I was also asked how to, how to pray for our church during this time. And I would say these two things. Pray that our faith would increase and that we would not doubt God's goodness. In these times it is easy to allow our faith to decrease and to doubt God's goodness. But because God is good, he does not ask us to do bad things. It's sad, which is proof that God has done a great work in our midst these last four years. We truly are family, and and, and this has been the hard part for everybody. 
Um, and, and we should rejoice in that because God did what we've asked him to do. He did what he was faithful. And we can, we can walk in that. So here's a short timeline. Uh, May 22nd, which is a Sunday, all three of our current missional communities will combine into one missional community and we'll meet for the remainder of time at our house on Sunday evenings at 4. Um, June 12th will be our last public gathering in this building. Um, we're going to cater lunch, so please be here that day. Please celebrate with us. We have some gifts we're going to give, um, and uh, we're going to bring in uh, lunch. Who are we? Do we know what we're doing yet? No? Okay. We'll bring lunch. Um, then in addition, after June the 12th, from June the 12th to June the 10th, uh, Sunday evenings, we'll continue to open up our home uh, to help anybody transition and help uh, do the best that we can to help everybody find a, uh, a, a new church home, which, of course, we hope that everybody will. And then lastly, for those that are still interested, July 14th through the 17th is still the uh, camping trip for those that still want to go. So we'll still be doing that. So, um, any questions? Wise? No? Okay. If you'll stand, yes. Um, what do you mean by getting gifts? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are going to be giving gifts to a lot of the people in our church. We want to say that we love them and we're thankful for them, and so we'll be, we have some uh, gifts picked out. Actually, uh, uh, your Uncle John had a great idea, and that's what we're doing. You'll find out on the 22nd, 12th, 12th, sorry, 12th, yes, no, of next month, buddy. Amanda, you said you had a question? Oh, no, no, I was telling Bree, the speaker. Oh, okay. Um, so we are open, we'll, we'll put together um, a list of churches that we suggest. You all are more than welcome to go with my family. Um, as of right now, we believe we're going to uh, we're going to start by uh, going to a church called Living Grace, um, looking through their website and listening to some of their sermons. They're very gospel centered, and um, they believe in church planting. And obviously, those are two things close to our heart. And so, we're going to start there. Um, I have a list of a couple of other churches that we would suggest as well that we'll have to you guys. Um, but we would um, we invite you to. It'll be different, but it, it, it'll, be, it'll be good because this is what God is asking us to do. Okay, so if you'll stand with me, if there's no other questions. <clears throat> May God's gracious hand of rest, peace, joy, and blessing be upon you this week. In times of doubt and fear... May God impress upon your heart that Jesus is a good king. In times of temptation and despair, may God remind us that Jesus has made us righteous. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you're dismissed.